This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. It is Shake Them Ropes, the premium edition. My name is Chris Novembrino. I am joined by Jeff Hawkins, and today we are going beyond the mat. Jeff picked this movie out, and I appreciate this pick because I have seen this movie, but it was probably about two decades ago. This is something I would have watched when I was a teenager, uh, and, and maybe early college, but like that was right around the time I kind of fell out of wrestling a little bit. So I saw this when it first came out, and it had one impression on me, but it was very, very interesting to go back and look at all of the characters in this movie, all the people in this movie who we all know and know very well, and see how life has moved and shifted for them over the last couple of decades. I saw this in an advanced screening, um, I would say around August of 99, maybe September of 99. Um this this documentary is very important in a lot of the opinions I formed about the WWF. Um it, and it a lot of those things just ring true to me today and a lot of my skepticism about Vince McMahon. Uh apparently Oh yeah, when Dave Meltzer says Vince McMahon is a tremendous promoter and I respect him but I wouldn't trust him. Man, that was one of the most true lines in the There's entire film. There's a lot film. of truisms to this and we're going to I'm, you know, I'm prepared to do scene by scene breakdowns of a lot of this stuff. Um Let's do it. You have to understand that this was done with the cooperation of the WWF who later then sued um Blaustein to try to get the movie not released or to at least get their footage not released on the movie. And that to me says that there's a lot of real to this. There's a lot of that's not, I think they were, you know, what's odd is I think, I think the WWF would be most offended by the rock mankind stuff versus any of the Vince stuff, which is amazing to me because it's the Vince stuff that I think is, (laughs) It is possibly the most damaging uh, uh, of any of the things in here. But 20 years later, I find I have a lot more contempt for a lot more people involved in this film than I did when I originally watched it. Because you realize, with the exception of maybe two people, everybody here is working some kind of angle about something. And it makes you feel dirty almost watching this movie in many ways. Like even the people that you think are just innocent bystanders for the most part, they have a, they have an angle to this. Like Dennis Stamp to me, you know, when, when you first watched it in 99, Oh, it's so tragic and things like that. No, he's, this was a setup for sympathy and he's, he's playing funk and he's, you know, he, he's, he's a grifter too. Oh yeah. That whole scene played out totally gross. I, I think, when I was younger, I was kind of like, wow, it's amazing that he's sitting and he's still getting ready for his it's last match. And he just 
No, it's a total 100% It's a complete reality TV segment. We're going to put this guy in front of the arena doing his cockroach business, and then Terry Funk's all of a sudden going to be there. And then they're going to have... I mean, it was such a work. Everybody in this movie, except for maybe Jim Cornette and maybe Jake the Snake's daughter, have a certain level of scumminess to them. <laughs> but yeah, let's get into this. We start with uh, Bernie Bla- It's Bernie Blaustein. I got that name right, correct? Yes, Bernie you know, Blaustein. Going over yes. his love of wrestling and how his father never really encouraged it, which I can relate to. My father... When he was in the Navy, he'd go to, to shows in, like, Long Island at the Nassau Coliseum. You know, but, but he did not really like wrestling. It was, a, it was a source of contention in my teen years because wrestling was on against Star Trek The Next Generation. Yes, yeah. Pops reluctantly took me to go see wrestling shows, but this was not a father and no, son I ne- bonding activity in the Noble My, my parents would never take me to NWA house shows. Uh, I had to I had to wait until I was old enough to have a friend old enough to drive me because they were on school nights. And, you know, you, you can't stay out past 10 on a school night, Jeff. And, you know, the loop was always like a Tuesday in Hampton and then maybe a Thursday in Norfolk. So it's like, you know, I, I, I you know, I got to watch the TV, but I didn't get to go to a lot of the house shows there. But apparently when Blaustein's father took him to a show. Seeing a wrestler in a non-wrestling situation somewhat mentally scarred him. This is such a strange pivot point in one person's life, yeah. right? Like, I remember when I realized that wrestlers have real lives outside of the ring and families and whatnot. And frankly, it didn't really do anything for me one way or another. So we start the documentary process at Titan Towers in Stamford, Connecticut, which is amazing on so many levels that he was given this much access. And, of course, the McMahons all come in as a family into work because it's a, <laughs> as, one, as one employee puts it later, we're a mom-and-pop shop. Of course you are. But Vince, in a line that has stuck with me for ages, we make movies. We make movies. And he dresses like Orson Welles in the late 1930s with the open shirt, the high-waisted business pants, and he's, like, directing scenes and really, especially for Blaustein's cameras, really trying to position himself as this grand Oh, I think he's like that. I think... I think he's like that. But he's playing it up a little. When I was watching... Yes, definitely, because I was watching the watch-along that Blaustein did with Mick Foley and Jesse Ventura. Like, they do a dinner thing that's, like, weird and kind of oddly staged. And then after that, they rewatch about 45, 48 minutes of the movie, and they talk about it. And one of the things Mick Foley talks about is he talks about... That Vince is very much hamming it up for the camera. He cites the Darren Drozdov scene where he makes. Yes, that part I I thought was played up quite a bit. That's definitely played up, but I think that there are other parts that are played up. But what got me was that smug look on his face after he takes that drink of water after he says, We make movies. Looking at the movie director who is actually yeah. making a movie, I'm and just this like movie you. is more of a movie than anything that WWE has ever yeah, made. Yeah, and that, then they go to that dude love shot, and there are two things that stood out to me so huge. Number one, 
when he goes, you're not dancing, are you? And no, I'm not dancing. I'm just strutting. And Vince gives him this off look for a moment. That's so telling of, oh my God, that looks stupid. What are you doing? You're a moron. And then he's trying to get a shot with a guy holding a camera in a wheelchair. So it's supposed to be low and probably pan up in a way to, to, to show dude love. And he's, and he's trying to make sure that the cable's not in the shot. And to me, he cuts himself off before he starts screaming at the guy. Because I bet you he's a tyrant like that on the set. You're not getting the cable in the shot, are you? You know, as if, you know, as if he's not Ed Wood. Like that matters. And this shot's going to go that fast. You're not going to ever notice it. As if he's not Ed Wood. You know, <laughs> as if this isn't like a, a, a run and gun guerrilla filmmaking type of operation. But I mean, he is he is Cecil B. DeMille here in his element. That is a really great way of putting it. He thinks he's Orson Welles, but mm-hmm. he's really Ed Wood. Yeah. And then Blaustein says something that stuck with me quite a bit. It's about spectacle. And it is. It's all spectacle. He could care less about having a great wrestling company. This is about spectacle. He could care less about having a great wrestling match. In fact, the only time you ever really hear Vince talking about formal wrestling is when the two guys are having a tryout match. And Vince sort of says, oddly, oh, look, it's technical wrestling for a change. Yeah. Because this is not what his company does. (laughs) That That was great, too. It's like, oh. (laughs) <laughs> uh so we get to the aforementioned draws uh interview um a couple uh, darren drosdoff i knew from the university of maryland because he was i believe he graduated in 92 or 93 when i was trying to walk on at uva so i knew who darren drosdoff was and this puke story uh came from his time at with the denver broncos i believe that he would get so worked up and, and and this happens to a lot of different football players. They they try and psych themselves up to the point where the nerves cause them to throw up. But there's so much corporate grandstanding here. You know, the whole uh, sorry to make you wait or sorry keeping you. That's a Vince thing. He keeps people outside waiting just as a power play. See Kofi Kingston. Yeah. Or, yeah, or, or uh, yeah, outside the door trying to get things, you know, pitched. Uh, Moxley told talked about it too and so you get the pitch and he and god vince's four dollar words come out as if he almost scripted this promo like your ability to regurgitate on command and then he says it fits well with the wwf attitude and i'm just like god it's all the corporate bs speak we get today but from back then and that and that cheap old laugh and then, and then he says, now you got to do it for these cameras. You know, it's a, it's a power position. It's, it's him showing off. This is him exercising that he is now your mm-hmm. boss, right? It, it's in his mind. It's like, oh, I'm getting you into the gimmick. But what's really going on here is this power exercise. I get to tell you to puke on command and you get yeah. your money. And and then we go back to a Vince after after Draws leaves. We go back to a Vince McMahon uh, cut interview where he compares the WWF to the old star system. And this has stuck with me as well in terms of he wants to be a 1950s because his entertainment 
as a child that he really loved, and he talks about this a bit in, I think, the Playboy interview, were like the old serials of the 1950s. So this he does central casting there to me. He looks for a leading man, leading woman, and uh, and monsters. Although, and then you need character actors yeah, too. Well, he doesn't, but but uh, but the studios did. But it's weird because then he talks about monsters, but it's not in the way I think of it now. It, it's that you're creating stars and they could become monsters, and you want to make sure that you can control them. And yes, that, and, yes, that line yes. really stuck with me, too, because you're looking at The Rock this whole time, and this is something that obviously Blaustein can't be aware of either, but what they're doing and what the whole purpose of that I Quit match later on in the movie is, is mankind helping get The Rock over, who had only been wrestling for about a year and a half at that point. Uh, mankind says that later on. I can't remember if it's in the film or if it's when he's talking with Blaustein and Jesse Ventura. That was the whole purpose of this. And so what's actually happening during this movie, right underneath Vince's nose, is he's actually making the monster who will eventually break free mm-hmm. of the chains from Yeah, him. and he doesn't realize it at the time, which is so great. Nope. But this is also interspersed with... Uh, PJ Polanco and Coco Beware and Al Snow basically talking about how disappointed they were after all these promises. You know, PJ, aka uh, the at that time I believe he was doing the Portuguese man, yeah, just, just incredible. incredible, the uh, Portuguese man of war, Aldo Montoya. Aldo Montoya. Uh, you know, he had just gotten married and wanted to go on a honeymoon, and then he gets shipped off to. Uh, is it OVW or Memphis where he's making $50 a day? Yeah, it was like somewhere. He said it was like USWA. That's I, where I, it was. USWA. Yeah, there we yeah. go. Coco Beware talking about, uh, I guess he had made an investment and Vince McMahon was angry at him for it. But later, you know, later Vince is talking about how he fired Coco for getting in a fight with, uh, with, with the. The producer. Well, and that was very. Well, what happened was, and- I believe this was on a tour of Germany. And Shawn Michaels was the one getting in the fight with this guy who was a former NHL guy, I believe. He was there basically to keep the boys in line, so to speak, and, and things like that. And the fight when, when Coco went to break it up, according to Coco, so take this with a grain of salt, too, is that the fight started between the two of them after he intervened on behalf of Shawn Michaels trying to break it up. And, and so that's why Vince fired him. And I can believe either way. I can believe... That he was trying to play peacemaker, got in a fight, maybe got fired for losing the fight, but he says he won it. And Shawn Michaels kind and of Shawn weaseled Michaels out of weasels too. out of it. Yeah, but it's also interspersed with a uh, member, I believe. I believe she's the liaison to creative for human resources. I don't know if that was the person that I talked to originally when I went out for creative. She toes that oh company my God. line very, it's very, very well. It's a mom and pop well. operation. And then the line that just makes you wretch anytime. We work hard, but we play hard, too. And I'm just like, up yours, lady. You know, Vince is sort of notoriously not a player. He just works all He's the time. He's a bully, time. though. His, play, his version of playing right, is a bully. That his like, version of playing. And it's even that version of play is within the context of doing this to your yeah. employees. So if you're bullying your employees... 
I guess you could say you're having fun at work. It's fun at other people's expenses, but but I don't even really consider that play. Play is like going to the Grand Canyon or going and surfing, and Vince doesn't do yeah, any his, of that. Vince doesn't take Vince's time off. Vince's version of playing is pushing you in a pool when you're fully clothed. They're trying to run you off the road in a drag race. There are few things that are funnier than that. Did I ever tell you that I captioned that interview on the Stone Cold Steve Austin show? Did you? Yeah, yeah, that was one of the ones that I captioned. I, I remember getting done after we finished that and checking out and talking to the guys and going like, wow, Vince did some really crazy things there. And that was a real pain in the ass, too, because Vince decided that it was his own damn show, so we were going to go an extra 15 or 20 minutes, and he wasn't even interesting in the last 15 minutes after being very, very weird for 60 minutes straight. Yeah, I a lot of my opinions on Vince came from the old Dave Lagana podcast, uh, We Want Wrestling, where he had a bunch of former writers there. And Colt Court Bauer, you know, would tell all these stories about, you know, well, I was driving home and then Vince came up in his car and he wanted to drag race and then he tried to run me off the road and he just laughed the next day and you're just like, what a dick. <laughs> Absolute dick this guy is. He's, he's, a, he's a gym school bully. Gym class bully. All that he, he's 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 the guy who who you know becomes a jock and then goes I'm now a jock I can bully all the nerd kids and it's just and the stories on that podcast you know us you know telling writers that they had to drive to the next town at like one a.m. or waking them up at three a.m. to make copies you know to, to show their dedication and crap like that he's the rich kid who has enough money so he thinks that he's actually friends with the jocks yeah. but the jocks are only hanging out with him For because he has yeah. the money but he's aware of that now and he's turning it on the jocks and acting like they're all taking from him but he's the one who's been trying to hang out with them this whole time it's very perverse so we go oh and then next we get the uh, aforementioned dave Meltzer quote <laughs> dave looking young spry bit of a mullet here uh a little fit da- too, dave you know? is da- uh, dave is yeah. dave though man dave cannot say dave yes. cannot say a sentence without rambling or trying to think of something else i mean i i he Look, thinks as he speaks, yes. and I do this sometimes too. But like, he really does. I like Dave a lot, but man, Dave. But I when like you Dave say as Dave well. is Dave, everybody knows what you mean, man. He, he's not. He's not short and to the point. He he gets caught up on tangents from time to time. He is just, and sometimes he just doesn't get jokes. And he, I, you know, I'm. People have accused him of being on the spectrum. I won't go that far, but man. I can't make psychological analyses of people I've met exactly one time in my entire life. No, and I've only spoken to him a few times through email, and like I, I had dinner with him a couple times, you know. But you know, he's 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 as nice as can be, but he also has he also has a bit of a worker thing in him too. I think he was really flummoxed by meeting me. I was high out of my mind. Oh, was this mind at Kaiju at Big Bottle? Kaiju sh- okay. Yes, yes. This was at the Kaiju where I crashed into the VIP section, not knowing I had crashed into the VIP section until I had like settled in. I was like, oh, I probably shouldn't be here. And then you could see me all throughout that entire uh, Kaiju um, where like I'm yelling at every single wrestler because I'm high as hell, and I'm also like, whoa, I crashed into the VIP thing. This is inadvertently one of the cooler things I've ever done in my life. I went to the F4W convention in 2012, and the dinner table was myself, uh, a local indie guy from Vegas, 
and Paul Fontaine with Dave Meltzer, and I just got to hold court with him the whole time, but, uh... Oh, that's Yeah, funny. and, you know, you could tell Dave was just, you know, hey, man, I just want to eat from time to time, so, you know, I kept the questions to a minimum, but I could not shut up one of the guys at my table who just wanted to ask everything under the sun. And, but I've I've had dealings with him. I was a source of his on the UFC sale. I, you know, I was... Writing jokes for him for the Ric Flair roast after uh, after Eric Bischoff decided to drop out. So you know I I'm friendly with Dave, but Dave's another guy where man if you if if you're not used to him right then or he's not interested in you, you're not going to get an answer from him. So you know you know use use your powers. Uh, God, the other just I'll get back to the movie in a second, but the worst episode of Shake Them Ropes ever done was Rob McCarron had been doing the uh, raw updates for for uh, the Observer website. And he called in his favor for Dave Meltzer to do an interview with us to get us more exposure and stuff. And it was the day that Nick Bockwinkle died. And if you know Dave, man, Dave and Bockwinkle were tight. And Dave was, just did not want to talk about the there was like a pay per view coming up, or there's some big WWE news or something to that effect. He wanted to talk about Bachwinkle. Well, Rob wasn't feeling the room, and and he's had this this happened on a couple different interviews. Is Rob not into Bachwinkle? Rob doesn't know who Bachwinkle is. I don't think. Other oh, than man, Bachwinkle's like some of the best promos. No, he's Rob, awesome. But, but but Rob's you know a little younger than you, and his only exposure to Bachwinkle was as a commissioner in WCW. So. This interview isn't going anywhere, and, and Rob's still at that point where when we had a guest, he was scared to death I was going to say something stupid to the guest. So I basically butt in, and I ask a question about Nick. And you could not shut up, Dave, about Nick. And it was great. It turned, the, it turned his mood around because he was so sad. And he didn't want to talk about WWE at all, but he did want to talk about Nick Bockwinkle. So, I mean, that happened, but at the same time, Rob just beat himself up mercilessly after that interview. He's like, I should have waited. I should have <laughs> known. But you know. I've had some dud interviews myself uh, on, on like the don't worry about the government side. I did this big, I set up this big thing with Dan Carlin. Uh, maybe you've heard of him. He does like yeah. hardcore history and stuff. And, and Bruce Carlson, who does My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. This was like three or four years in. This was kind of like a little bit of a master stroke. And I was going to moderate this whole panel discussion and everything. And I did it. And I got everybody's audio. And then my audio was corrupted. Like something happened where I sounded like a chipmunk. And so the whole thing, like you hear me and I'm like, and so I had to go back in and manually punch in every single (laughs) question that I asked and like clean up this interview. Um, And I got it out. It ended up sounding fine, but it took hours to do because I had to like keep taking the question to make sure it was in flow and like listen to the chipmunk version of myself and try to get what the question was from that audio which I could barely make out and listen to the answer and make sure that what I said landed right and sounded organic enough the whole thing was this big process I mean podcasting and broadcasting and doing stand up or anything on the stage is failing in public until you start succeeding in public well just to put a button on this the Tyrus interview was pretty much the same way we had him on the show to plug tna's pay-per-view or something to that effect and he, he just wasn't giving us answers i mean he was given i mean there, there were questions he had heard 800 times and stuff 
And then I butt in because we had tried out for the same semi-pro football league in like 1996. <laughs> and then he just all of a sudden lights up. And I'm just like, you got to read the room, kid. <laughs> and Rob wouldn't speak to me for a week after that because he's like, you stole my interview. I'm like, dude, you were dying. I just came in to help you. I, I, yeah, you got to save a spot sometimes. He's having a little bit of a rough sledding right now in his professional career. Tyrus? Oh, well, that's, yeah. that's Britt McHenry. And, you know, Britt McHenry has her own issues. I don't know who to believe on that one. So, but uh, let's go back to the, uh, we were introduced to all pro wrestling and Roland Alexander. Mm, the aptly named Roland Alexander. You know, about 50% of what Roland Alexander says is dead honest truth. And the other 50% is unmitigated bullshit. Yes, yes. And I do think that Blaustein did a good job illustrating. Editing, editing yes. on this one was, yes, was pretty absolutely. damn good. Because look, very, very tight. when Alexander's given the, the spiel about, you know, it improves character. And when he's talking to that basically comatose kid who comes in wanting to be a student. The, goes, yeah, the, he had the, he, I mean, I mean, both him and dad had the duh face. My favorite part is when he's like, you got to stop eating Jack in the Box. And yeah, both of I'm, them look at him like, this is some completely foreign concept. How could this be? What are you talking about? No yeah, way, man. Do you, you want read, me to eat vegetables? Do you read labels? I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking about? But I mean... No, but like honestly, the if, stuff if, about not making money though—that's true. That's true. And th but then it's counteracted when we we're introduced to—I mean, but then it, but you know, then he goes to the hard sell on the kid. So, are you ready to make a deposit right now? And it's such a—I I get this a lot from improv theaters because that's what—that's all they—you know. Hey, we had this audition for you. Are you ready to make a deposit right now? And all they want is the deposit. They don't care if you're that good because they just want you in the door. But we're introduced. That's how martial arts studios mm -hmm. work, too, right? You don't actually have to be all that good at taekwondo or karate or whatever you're taking. If you're willing to keep paying, they're willing to keep teaching you, and they'll eventually give you a ceremonial advancement up to a certain point. We're introduced to two members of uh, APW's dojo, which looks like it's out of Roland Alexander's garage, which is... Yeah, it looks like he has some warehouse space or something rented out. Which is fine, because there, there's plenty of those out there. Uh, no, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not the problem with his operation. No, but uh, we're introduced to Tony Jones who has taken a customer service job at Visa. It looks like his dad lives with him along with his either girlfriend and wife and, and kid. And Mike Modest, who live, who's probably the head trainer and lives in a little space above, above the training center just so that he doesn't have to pay rent for the most part. And he also works at a funeral home. Mm -hmm. He's got a couple of cats. Look, but he's dead. But Mike Modest is dead right about at that time that, WCW, ECW, which to a lesser extent, and the WWF are all about big men and Hollywood yep. stuff. And in Japan, that's where they respected work rate. He's dead on. He's not delusional at all. And what he's bringing to the ring, and he's actually not bad technique-wise. Oh, no, he's great. Seen. Yeah, no, he's got he's got technical chops for sure. Uh, what he's bringing to the ring wasn't going to get anywhere in WWF at that time. You needed to have a big, vivacious character, and Mike Modest just wasn't that. 
But we, we, we get Roland Alexander going, you know what? He's been here. He's ready. And it's, you know, he's, he's, he's right about named. that. Yeah. He's, he's right Mom, about this that. This is perfect for this guy. He's right about that. But then Roland puts on the crocodile tear thing for a few moments. I'm just like, God, you're such and a And then bag. we find later on from the director that it's because he's getting 20%. And yeah. that makes a lot more sense. We'll, 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 we'll get that, get to that in the postscript of this whole thing. But Tony Jones also has some cutscenes in here where he basically, Says Roland Alexander doesn't pay the guys unless he likes the match, which is such a carny crap thing. And, and in between, Roland's going, "Well, I think we pay pretty well compared to other indies out there." <laughs> He's just it, this is where Blaustein just totally eviscerates this guy as, as as a bit of a huckster. Oh yeah, absolutely. I I think it's pretty clear how Blaustein feels about this guy. And I mean. Even the slow mo walk up to the state, he's taking a little bit of a piss on him. Yeah, but we get the total reality TV setup situation where Tony and Mike are gonna have a dark match, quote unquote, a tryout match at a at a house show or at a uh, no, it's at a raw TV taping. Um, so they all roll up, and I gotta say, Jim Cornette had some great great advice here for them. Yeah, slow down. Don't be nervous. You're going to want to speed up because the crowd isn't into you. So you're, you're going to panic because you think they're not into you and eventually, but because they're not here to see you. It, it's, it's every, it's almost everything you tell a young improv student, you know, before a level two show or, or something like that. If it looks slow down because you're not going as slow as you think you are out there. You know, I, I, I have nothing but respect for Jim Cornette for for these parts here because he's he, to me he's one of the few honest actors on here. Yes, he's not giving bad advice here. He is definitely giving these guys the best most useful advice that they can utilize at that moment inside of the context of this match. You know, and, it, it, and I thought that was good. And it's obvious to me he was watching the match that they did in order to make these guys better, as opposed to Vince McMahon being there and saying, get me tape, will you? You know he's never going to watch that tape. Yeah, he's never going to watch that and tape. And Jim Ross Vince is, is there interested. to feed Jim Ross, because I... Look, Jim Ross and I <laughs> don't mix in terms of his time at the WWF. I I think his, his victim shtick is so put upon. And, and Tim telling... I, I viewed his advice to Tony Jones as get on the gas. Yes, I, I thought so. I mean, it was like stack up your chest, and I I don't know. I mean, Tony clearly had been working on his arms, so I, I have to imagine, unless Tony just does biceps, I, I, mean, I have to imagine he's hitting limits with where his chest can go. Ross isn't wrong to tell him to get something no. flattering. He's not no, wrong. He's not wrong about that. That's definitely true. And, and Jones could totally change up from that onesie for sure. You know, but 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 Ross earlier, I believe, had said I could I could care less about it being a good match as long as I forget the exact quote because I couldn't understand it. But he's basically into the sizzle over steak thing while he's you know part of talent relations. Um, but but we get the rolling out. Which is funny because yeah. one of the signature Jim Ross lines in his podcasting career has been, "It's all sizzle and no steak." Yes, he is a man of many contradictions. Uh, the one that always sticks out to me is he was feeding Meltzer 
<laughs> lines about WWF management being upset with Michael Cole when Michael Cole took over for Raw, just in an attempt to both Meltzer fe- feeding this information out to the public and Ross feeding Meltzer in an attempt to get JR his job back on Raw. So I, I-, I view Ross as a bit underhanded as well, but we get Roland Alexander snow jobbing both of them. Didn't wasn't quite exactly honest with with them in terms of the feedback he was hearing during the match. Yes, someone accused them of steal or someone said he was gonna steal a, a move. I think that was a play up for the camera. I just viewed that as a joke. Yes, I thought so did I. they thought that the Emerald Flosion was cool. I, I mean that's the Emerald Flosion. That's Masawa's finishing move. I, I think the idea that Mike Modest innovated that is, you know, farcical. You know, we we get, you know, the the Tony's good, he needs to prove, but Mike Modest is ready now. And Modest, you know, it's not dishonest to say he wasn't ready cuz he was, cuz I believe he'd go to Noah or DDT, you know, shortly after this movie was released. I mean, he he had a nice career in Japan and also I believe in Ring of Honor. Um Oh. Okay. Uh, you know, he, 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 I mean, he wasn't a huge star, but he was, you know, a, not to be derivative about, but a solid hand, so to speak. No, that's kind of where his level is at, but I expect him to actually have a successful career as a solid hand. I, I thought that he was someone who could do that for sure. And then we get the, uh, I mean, we get, we get the, uh, I, I forgot we got the line. Uh, you were right. I was wrong. I thought it was in a postscript, but uh, 20% if they're signed. That's bullshit. That is yeah. uh, that is yeah. That is some so Hollywood bullshit. Yeah, huckster. Because managers only take fifteen. Right out here. Right. I know. I I, I heard that and I was like twenty percent. My goodness. And this tryout thing. I what we didn't really get is how did Roland set all of this up to like. How much string pulling does he really have the ability to do? I'm going to tell you a quick story. My, my first improv theater that I went out here to, where where the audition was, did the check clear. If you ever got industry, which, God, back then it was like, we need to get industry for our show, and you're doing that before you're any good. It's like, improv teams would have a poster and five shows lined up and would be trying to get industry before they even had like their first practice. It was absolutely ridiculous on our part, but if they ever called up the, 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 uh, the office of the theater to get tickets or if they were interested in your show, the owner of the theater would tell them that you sucked. Come see my show instead. And his show. It's called improv, but it was the same show every week. Right, the right. Same so games, it had been honed. Same yes. games, the same lines, the same laugh lines, and he would do that, and he pissed off so many people. And a few people actually, you know, have a career now. Um, you know, Cedric Yarborough, who was on uh, Speechless, was out there at the time. He pulled that crap on him. Uh, Hal Rudnick of... Uh, it's film threat or film nerds. I forget what the name of his name, but he's a pretty big internet star. I mean, some, I mean, nobody huge, huge, but he'd also list on the program like anybody who ever took a class there and became famous elsewhere. 
Uh, it's because of us. Like Will Ferrell's name is on there. Will Ferrell left after the audition. <laughs> He's like, fuck this guy. I'm part of my French. But that's what I saw when I, I looked at Roland Alexander is, is I probably signed something at this improv theater, which gave the owner like half of the royalties on anything I made. And I just don't know it. <laughs> okay. So my, my notes are a bit weird here because I believe they had a cut scene between cactus and funk. Um, but I believe this was showing ECW and, and a bit of the inner workings in terms of, you know, the infamous cutting promos in the basement of, of, uh, Heyman's mom's house in Long Island, which I this thought was well covered. Cool. Yeah, I thought that this entire sequence was really well edited and very true to the ECW energy, and it was so fun to go back into that time capsule. And of, co- and of course, the live, you know, this is the dance, uh, you know, rah rah. Let let's go win one for the Gipper thing. You know, before this the is show. another one that it's was fifty awesome. percent. No, it's good. It was also like fifty percent carny, fifty percent real as hell. And and I thought the stuff that was real as hell when Heyman's real as hell, it's very real. And then there's a little bit of like earlier part of the speech where it's a bit sticky. Oh, I don't I don't know about that. I I, th- I think it's sticky, sh- but it's what at that time ECW had been so decimated by talent. People no, no, both. it was it was. It's good what they needed the to hear. He brought it home really well. I, I think it was weaker in the beginning and got stronger towards the end when he realized, you know, he got into that. This is the dance. You're not trying to get somewhere else. You are where you want to be. And for a lot of guys, like someone like New Jack, this is exactly where they needed to be. They weren't going to be super successful in WCW as it was constructed at that time, or in WWF as it was constructed at that time. Yeah. So we get introduced to. To, uh, Cactus Jack. Uh, he's insane. He's going to be uh, giving up the title at the Royal Rumble in Anaheim. I remember this uh, very clearly. And we kind of get counterbalanced between him as a father with his own father, who is obviously not into what Mick does. Uh, I just, I want to be the uh, most polite wrestler. <laughs> Remember that, and, and then, and then the line, "I'm going to retire at 35 or 36." I was like, "God, bet you you'd like that those 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 words back." Yeah, I, I mean, you know, Mick is adorable in this movie. It, it's hard not to like him. No, it's a lot. It, it's it's hard not to love him, but at the same time, I get so mad at him. For, for all not these stopping. chair shots. Yeah. Yes, I know. I Actually, I, I was crying when I was watching him take all of these chair shots because of what we know now about his medical condition. Because you now know what the receipt is on those chair shots, and it's it's really quite horrible. Uh, and then, after that quick vignette, we go to Jake Ro- the introduction of Jake Roberts into this. Jake Ugh. Roberts was the star of this movie when it came out because everybody wanted to be a sob story about him. And I got to tell you, my view of Jake Roberts in this movie 20 years later is that you can't believe anything he says in this movie. No, he's such a piece of trash in this movie. And in the 
watch again that they did, Mick Foley, Jesse Ventura, and the director, they were talking about it, and Mick was talking uh, about when Jake was really trying to preach that he had been saved and was trying to kind of, you know, work a preacher gimmick with everybody. And Mick talks about, you know, like going to Jake for advice, like Jake was some sort of preacher and Jake essentially was working him. And Mick finally put it all together and everything in this movie. I mean, even when he's talking with his daughter, none of it's real. No, none of it's real. It's working an angle probably for cash. And, and, and speaking his of his daughter, man, sort of nails it. She she actually has the absolute operative line, which is some of it's real, but a lot of it isn't. She's figured it out. It, it's just heartrending for her to have to live through she's, that. She's figured it out, but at the same time, watching this twenty years later, you realize she's part of the con too, a little bit. I I don't, I don't mean to like cast aspersions on her motives, but that scrapbook. That is a damaged person. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, totally. I mean, her whole studying of psychology thing, though, that's kind of... I ripped up I ri- ripped up these no- I ripped up these notes that I kept and put them in a scrapbook, and now I'm going to yeah. try and make you, you know, oh, I'm going to do an intervention, and you're going to love me because I give you this psychotic... That's, that scrapbook is psychotic. And then to end it with a lovely poet by the name of Sylvia Plath. Oh, I know. And, I was, and the, the line of just quoting, fuck you, daddy. I'm like, you, you don't daddy. need to quote a poet to get to that line. I, I just thought it was really funny to quote Sylvia Plath. And go but, go yeah. to that. <laughs> we get the pissing into a pool. We get, you know, you know, he's on crack. He's playing this up for the camera that he's the victim. While at the same time, he's delivering stuff condescendingly like like that whole i could be mayor of this town if i came oh I mean, it's, man such the, a- the delusions of grandeur thing of oh you just go into the town and they love you he does you could be yeah. here for a week and then just run this town and he does <laughs> he's dark man. it's odd because he's on a card here with chris adams if you notice that chris yeah, adams is probably the that. one chris adams probably is crack hookup <laughs> i mean because he he was into the drugs, and he eventually died of the drugs. And he, I mean, he was, and he was dealing, and he and Gino were hooked up with drug dealers in Texas the whole time, too, which is why Chris Abs never really wanted to leave Texas. But he bails on the autographs of people who desperately just want to say hi, you know, so he can go get his fix, because he basically doesn't like these people. And then they, they cut to him and Grizzly Adam, or not Grizzly Abs, Grizzly uh, Smith. Grizzly Smith, yes. His dad. And this is, a lot of this is BS, but a lot of it is maybe, maybe like Grizzly Smith saying, why did you rope me into this crap? Because he's out there chopping wood with like a Sunday suit on, and you're like... It's so weird. He he doesn't have the jacket on, but he Mm -hmm. has the shirt buttoned up and tucked into his... And a tie as he is breaking a rock. It's not chopping wood. He's breaking a rock. He's breaking rocks. (laughs) And I think it's meant to juxtapose with with the Foley and his father scene. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But my God. I mean, the the stories Jake would tell about, well, my mother was kidnapped and then her ex-boyfriend was shot. How much of that do you believe? Right? I think a lot of it has to be a crock of shit because you look at his dad and unless his dad 
is well, his somehow, dad's an asshole, though. Yeah, I mean, no, I, I believe that, but like he doesn't show the road wear and tear of the lifestyle that Jake describes his dad leading. Because if his dad led the life that Jake described, he would look worse than he does in that film. Yeah, I, and and just the things he was saying about Jake is just like he's not going to give him a compliment. Which is, you know, which is supposed to be the tragedy of this, and I get that. But at the same time, it's just like, dude, What's dude, Grizzly, gi- Grizzly gives no f's about there being a camera on him. I mean, he just, he's just like, uh, you know what? I thought he was a good son, and just, I'm gonna go on with my life. He is not, he is not gonna give Jake anything on this, which is fascinating in so many ways. He came from love, and he is still loved. We get a few vignettes after this, you know, China as being charming and and vivacious as opposed to just, you know, the stern bodybuilder that's on camera. And God, this is so offsetting, given how it would end a few years later. She did have personality, but at the same time, she was so needy. And I think the relationship. I I mean, you you listen to her talk about her mother. And I I think it's all right there in the quote about mom where she's trying to achieve and she's studying hard in school and she goes to the gym and gets really fit and it's never enough. And she's never conventionally beautiful and she's never appreciated for any of her intellectual accomplishments. And she comes to WWF and Vince looks at her and is like, there's a freak. She's the ninth wonder of the world, Um, which is supposed to kind of put her over, but also is kind of, classifying her as a bit of a human oddity, although she didn't end up in that faction. And then obviously <laughs> everything and how that, that plays out with Hunter Hearst Helmsley and Triple H. And, yeah, that relationship And then she ends up with up. Waltman. And yeah, I mean, like the whole thing is, it's very tragic because you can certainly imagine a narrative wherein Joni gets appreciation from somebody who actually sees that this woman has this very, very unique combination of assets and is beautiful in a very unique way. And she never found that. Well, here's what what my takeaways from this were. Number one, she is genuinely funny and entertaining. Yeah. When she's doing the host thing in the nail salon as the QVC host genuinely engaging to me on that i wish we could have seen that a little bit more but then again once vince sees comedy you're doomed on the other hand it was also after that long monologue about you know i'm trying to look better i'm trying to get in shape I'm trying to uh, the, the the coda was blaustein saying she would get surgery later to you know make her look more feminine you're just like oh that's probably the start of it and that's the beginning of the end right there yeah, it, this relentless pursuit of acceptance and wanting to be more accepted by the fans is more feminine. I mean, it, it's just, I mean, it goes back to mom, uh, that whole conversation with mom right there. It's its very, very sad. We get a uh, short uh, interview with Spike Dudley, which made me love him forever. This is oh, where I became so a huge fun. fan. Yeah, Spike's great. But he's obviously taken a few chair shots, probably has a concussion or at least massive blood loss. And they're asking him to quote Shakespeare, and I believe he pulls out like uh, I am. I am. I do. I do from I believe Henry the Fourth Part Two. Falstaff. Or, yeah. 
Yeah. But but it's like, dude, it's obvious he's a bit out of it, but at the same time, I believe he's still a school teacher at this time, but it, it, you he know, had just, just being an quit. English major. Yeah. yeah. I, it, he was so that made me love him so much <laughs> as a guy and rooted for him to make all the money he could. And then we get what to me was the worst moment in WWF history. The moment when Vince McMahon figured out he could put McMahon's over actual talent. And he got in the ring and became the WWF champion, beating up Stone Cold Steve Austin. I just... Everything, I think, can go back to, oh, and then then I'm going to make Stephanie the women's champ and Shane the intercontinental champion, and my family will be stars on TV. And he starts talking about being a performer... Mm-hmm. And how there's the Mr. McMahon character, and there's the Mr. McMahon person. <laughs> we're different. We're totally different. We're totally different, but we're also kind of similar. I was like, you see, that's the whole problem, isn't it there, Vince? <laughs> and then we get the segment that has aged the most poorly on this movie, in my opinion. New Jack, going to Hollywood, going to try and be an actor. He's going to be like Denzel. And this is total, this is Blaustein white knighting. This is, hey, I got some connections in Hollywood. Let's set up this wacky, wacky premise where I can help a black man succeed. And then they go to the casting session. And let me, let me talk about this a bit, because this, this is duplicitous as hell. All of this. Number one, when you go into a casting session... If you're getting feedback, it's for another take. That's all you're getting. You're right. not get, you're not getting ja- it's but but man the way that uh the dude in that thing, well, we're done here. Mr. Condescending, but that's what you get. Usually usually you're not even that engaged production assistants. They just run the camera, do the thing, okay, thanks, and you leave. But this pandering, oh, I think he could be a leading man. Oh, I think, you know, he has a bit of character to him. Oh, you think? You think the scars on his head may make him more of a character actor than a leading role guy, dude? You really think that? But it's like, oh, I can see him as Denzel's best friend. It's all this. There, To me, this scene has so much resonance with Blaustein showing the phoniness of Roland Alexander and I'm hoping that's why he put it in there is that yeah all these Hollywood people are fake workers too because that's what I got exactly out of this whole thing that was my takeaway as well I I just thought that basically they were playing New Jack and I don't know that New Jack was able to put it together that he was getting worked at the time yeah at the time it was okay it's a joke funny joke ha 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 but now you watch it and you get mad I get mad at it because I'm just watching it going, screw these people. Yeah, they wasted this guy's time. I mean, I'm not sitting here and going like, New Jack's this great guy and we should do better by New Jack. Certainly not. He's not a great guy. But this was ridiculous and it was absurd to be sitting there and talking about him like he could be a leading man in a movie when this guy was stumbling through dialogue. If you wanted to help him, they're trying to put themselves over as as some sort of, you know, 
well, we have depth or, you know, we respect this guy for what he does. But if you want to help him, what you do is you go back over those lines Mm -hmm. and you go, okay, you didn't quite nail it. Let's get the words on your tongue. Now you know what the words are. Let's try to do another take. Let's do another take. Now you know what the words are. Yeah. If you're lucky, you get a second take. If they like you. The whole point of this was more of an exercise. He wasn't actually auditioning for anything in particular, it didn't seem like. I believe he was auditioning for an agent. Yeah, as a, as opposed, it felt like he was auditioning for an agent versus auditioning for an actual role in right, anything. Right, right. Yeah. So I, I mean, that's why I would say give him another take. But I mean, at the same time, and the that's, whole thing's and an that's, exercise. And that's also probably why they were talking so much about marketability. Right. It right. Is is they're probably low? They're probably how agent, can we utilize this person? They're agent assistants who want to be agents, so they talk all this flowery BS language. Trying to seem like they know more than they do. That, that's all that was. That was, I, I just, for me, I was like, God, that was my life for a number of years out here. That, now that phony crap. Then we move on to, to me, what was compelling, but has lost a lot of its luster due to Funk coming back over and over and over again. This is the lead up to Funk's retirement match in Texas. And we're introduced. Well, well, first we get the announcement and his family's reactions and and all that other stuff. But you know, this is compelling when you juxtapose it to what Mick Foley wouldn't do, right? Like the fact that he would end up coming back. This is kind of like a forerunner for what Foley would end up doing. Well, you know what else it is? Is Foley at least when we're introduced to him and playing with his kids and things like that, he would never work his family. Because he'd have to give up the ghost when they got upset. And that's what happened with the kids and things like that. The daughters and the mom, I think, buy into this as this being his retirement. His last and final retirement. I think they buy in. Even and though, they really want it. It's sad. Yes. Even though Funk, this is probably his third or fourth retirement by this point on this show. But yeah, and we're introduced to the most memorable person from this whole movie. The great Dennis Stamp. <laughs> and then, and he ends up... Uh, he has the referee's haircut. <laughs> I think, Jeff, one of the great justices of this movie is that he ends up getting to referee because you can't walk around in life with that haircut and not referee something if you lived in the 1990s. Well, I love the trampoline gimmick because you oh, always oh, got to be in the, shape. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. That's how I work out. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I don't do anything fancy. I just do dumbbells and a trampoline. They're called Dennis Lattes. He's actually in very good shape. I, I Uh, very good might be pushing it. He's in okay shape for 50. Well, yeah, for 50. I mean, come on. I'm only four years away from that, Chris. I'm looking at that going, God, I'd love to be in that kind of shape at 50. But we get the, uh, to me, the, the, uh, pre-planned reality TV thing. Of here comes Terry Funk. You're coming to the show, right? No, I'm not booked. And it's he he wants to be asked. This is the angle that Dennis Stamp is playing. He wants to be asked. He doesn't want to have to beg to be on the show. I want he wants you to, to ask in, me. You know, he asked in April, but now he's made other arrangements. But no, no, I can't, Terry, but please keep asking. I realized this is what depressed the hell out of me. I am the Dennis Stamp of improv. 
because I don't want to ask to be put on anybody's card. I want, I mean, I don't want to beg to be booked. And I won't go to your shows because I just get so upset watching going, that should be me down there performing and not you guys, or I should be a part of it. And I want to be asked to play. I used to and be I, like this with music, and I've and learned I'm, that I I'm, have to stop. And I'm watching, and it was tearing me up, Chris. For the first time in a long time, a movie tore me up emotionally in terms of my own life, and I just went, God, that's that's been me Because for he's three leading years. a less happy life than he could be, because what this guy really wants to do, clearly, is be in the ring and wrestling on some level against somebody doing some sort of work. He wants his credit. He wants what he think is due. Hey, I was in this business as long as these guys. Where's my love? Where is my respect? Where's where are people coming up to, you know, ask me to be part of celebrations of my peers' life? But the other part of this is because he hasn't come to terms with well, the reality is, Dennis, you're just not Terry Funk, dude, or Dory. You're you're Dennis, and that's okay. Um, but if you want to be working, what you need to do is show up at the shows and kind of nudge. And you know, you you actually you're not good enough to be sitting at home and hoping people call. I think this is a guy who never quite came to terms with that. Yeah, I I, I yeah, but man, that <laughs> that self kind of realization is is just an effing killer, man. It really is. Uh yeah, I one of the reasons I don't I get angry at Funk over all this is you know for that last show in Texas those were probably some pricey tickets. And, and he used, called in a bunch of favors to all of mm-hmm. these wrestlers to get all of these people to come out and do this show. Uh, what's it? Shane Douglas says, Terry Funk did something that none of these promoters could do. And that's true. And they probably were really pricey tickets. And he probably told guys like Bret Hart and Shane Douglas and all of these people, deadpan, this is definitely my last match. I got to hang him up. My knee's got arthritis. The other one's not working anymore. This has got to be it, Bret. This has got to be it. And, and that that's how he got Bret Hart out there. That's how he got Cactus Jack out there. That's how he got Shane Douglas out there. That's how he got Dreamer out there. Oh, I think he said, and we're filming it for a movie. And he go, movie? <laughs> yeah, Universal's backing this. Okay, I'm in. Uh, the, the, the double pin. I, I always love this spot where one guy gets the shoulder up and, and he's, he's the winner. Um, appropriate, I think. A bit of a, for a last match, looking up at the lights type thing, I think you want a more definitive pin. You know, the tough part with Bret Hart as your opponent is, you know, he has to go to the sharpshooter. That's really his finishing move. And, I mean, before that, he has the atomic drop, the forearm from the second rope, and, um, like, that clothesline of his. He just doesn't have the big alternate pinfall type of move. Yeah. Then we go back to Jake Roberts and his daughter and all the psychology. Oh, my God. I, I He has made himself a twisted little daughter, and he's aware of it. And it's I mean, the whole thing's just it's awkward and hard to watch. And it's yeah. When, when he makes plans with her and she wants to bring friends because she's uncomfortable 
you can tell he just doesn't want anything to do with her, to be honest with you, unless she can do something for him. Yeah, whatever. Okay, fine. Well, I'll meet I you think in the she's restaurant. Working him. It's funny. So I read this slightly differently. I think she's worried. I do. Yes, I think no, she's a I do think she's it. worried, but I also think she's working him. Like, like there's, yeah. there's, it's I, this family is very fucked up. Yes. Yeah, because because it's odd they never talk to her mom, and I don't know if she had passed or not. But if she were alive during, the, I would have loved to hear her side of this story, and probably. A fan who hooked up with him on the road, I guess. I don't know. I don't know that for a fact, but it feels like that. It feels like this is one of, uh, <laughs> to put, <sighs> there's not a good term for, I was going to say road beef, but, uh, <laughs> that's so demeaning, but I- I'll, I'll put it out there just because that's how the boys would always refer to it. You know, you know, the, the girls that you have in each city who you can call, you know, get some drugs, get some booze, hang out, have a good time, party, get laid, and then you leave. And it's on to the next town. And I'm wondering if the daughter was a was a product of that. But Jake leaving five minutes into the meeting, screw you, buddy. She's made all these plans. She's She has a support group. She's coming to see you, who she hasn't seen in years. You just go back to your room. Do some crack and go to bed. Up yours. I, that made me angry, that one. Oh, yeah. No, I, he's a total piece of shit. And then he's doing this whole big performance for the camera where he's talking about everything. And it's all contradictory, too. Like, he's... I don't want to hurt like, anybody. I don't I'm the anybody. victim. Yeah, I can't yours. remember everything. Or the line of "I do cocaine," so I don't think about the past while he's sitting there yeah. and relaying to you endless details about the past, and all he's doing is in the past. I mean, like look, it's such I, a user mentality. It's the I do drugs, so I don't feel the pain of the real world, and we're all supposed to go, oh. It's a sickness with you. Oh, well, and that's true. The first go round, like I, I actually, you know, having dealt with this, like when you go on tilt, that's true. When you yes. keep going on tilt over and over and over again, when you're someone like Jake Roberts who does uh-huh. the, who does no, the, exactly I'm getting right. clean and I'm finding Jesus gimmick too. Like, like no, no, the, the all of this is all just a big put on. There's different types of drug addiction though, and I, I do think that's worth noting. I do think there are people who do look for Jesus, but there are people who say they're looking just to say, hey, I'm really trying to turn my life around. Look, that when Jim they're, Cornette, Cornette line about Shawn Michaels finding Jesus, where he was like, I think you find Jesus when everyone in the real world thinks you're an asshole, is mm. fairly salient with a certain type of drug user. Yeah, I, I would say that as well. Um, but man, that, uh, you know, the whole... <laughs> Oh, oh, he rode in silence in the van. You know, oh, look at me. I'm so put upon playing for the camp. I just, I was done with it. I was so done. It doesn't take any effort to ride in silence, if, if you actually think about it. You actually you know don't have to takes, do much of anything. It takes effort of, because I, I believe Jake was trying to work the girl for money. That's what it felt like to me. She wanted a relationship, and he wanted money for crack, or just for him to forgive her, him, of whatever it is she's angry at. And that was never coming either. So that's when Jake basically shut down. When he gets, I think he wanted absolved. to look good for the camera. 
I think yeah. he wanted to go there and have a feel I'm good, trying, hugsy wugsy moment yeah. with her, and then go back and smoke crack and feel like he had worked over worked over her, and that didn't play out the way he thought it was going to for the camera. But I don't think that the director necessarily was able to kind of figure out. What is going on here? And and I'm willing to give him credit because, one, it didn't sink in with me the first time either. And, two, we were talking about a very, very fucked up family. Yeah, no. I, you know what? I'm going to give him an addendum. He wanted the feel-good moment without giving anything of himself. Right, right. Well, he hadn't fixed himself, right? It wasn't mm-hmm. like he had gotten better. He was going back and smoking crack. I, you know, it's I've turned a corner. It, what does that mean in that context? Then we get the story of Cactus Jack in the Royal Rumble in Anaheim. I don't have a... This is the part where I don't have a lot of notes on this. My my notes, you know, it was interesting to watch them go over the match. It was interesting to see Rock basically talk about himself in the third person. Um, You know, fully being nervous about the match. Uh, the match happening and just the kids can't taking it. And that's a part where I almost walked out of the theater when I saw this, because there, there's nothing that will chill my blood more than, than children crying. I oh, just, no, I, they're, they're crying. And what was hard for me and what I was thinking about is they're crying. And I think when I was younger, I go, Oh, well, they're kids. They don't really understand. And now that I'm older and we understand where Mick's at in terms of his health, no, their crying and their tears and their reactions just about spot on note wise. Like you don't need to have this great learned knowledge to kind of access the a priori dad's getting very hurt right now. Well, here's where I get angry. They put them front row center to yeah. watch this. Yeah. Knowing that this was going to happen. And and so this is a little bit on Foley to me. Yes, and, and so Foley talks about that in losing the... Losing his re- father of the year. <laughs> well, no, he talks about that in the rewatch with the director and Jesse Ventura, too. And so the, the, the plan was that he was going to do this. Yes, they were going to see this. And he thought that this might be potentially upsetting. Although, again, he had been through the hell in the cell thing. And his kids were of the belief that nothing can hurt daddy. And he was kind of like, okay, I could kind of sell this work. Um, nothing can hurt daddy. Daddy can't get hurt. And he thought that he could do this, and then, because they're in Anaheim, afterwards they could go to Disneyland. That was the plan. The plan was, we'll do this, dad gets hurt, next day we go to Disneyland, make it better. And yeah. obviously that plan didn't work out. Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, and I'm, the, the first time I met Foley was at a theme park, oddly enough, when I was working at Universal, and uh, he came to ride Jurassic Park. He's a very nice man. I, I had to escort him around the, the park, and... You know, we talked a bit and just a great guy. But at the same time, you're just like, and then they're watching it back in Florida with his wife and his wife. Wife to me is a hero. I mean, there's no oh, other way God. to put Colette this. Oh, God. Colette breaks my heart, man. What? Her face and those reactions, they're so real. And and it's there's so much love and so much concern and so much hurt every single time Mick takes a tough blow. You know what's funny to me is my lasting impression at the end of this movie because I, I don't have anything further on this other than just the you know the amount of violence and stuff they took it ends on vince and a bunch of people as they're fading out from him they're doing like a golden showers joke or something like that i go yes yeah he's with road dog and billy gun and yeah. he's talking about some stupid you know purient dx style skit and 
yeah, uh, he, he's not really all that concerned about Mick because it's on to the next thing. And, and Mick, I, the thing that really hurts me, honestly, Jeff, out of all of this, is Mick is sitting there and telling himself stuff like, oh, man, the people are going to remember this. They're, they're going to really, this is going to elevate things. This is going to, ele- this is more than just a match. People are going to remember, remember this is something special. And I think it's more than just a match to us as wrestling fans, especially those of us who watch that match. Like, that match is one of the more memorable matches of that era of WWF, for sure. But... This idea that it was going to permeate the culture, that it was going to open up something. The only way that that was sort of true is that this was part of the pedestal that The Rock would ultimately end up standing upon. And Mick Foley was doing his job to build up The Rock. It would have permeated if they weren't doing this every month thereafter. Right. But they just got more and more violent. And more and more pay-per-views. And and they had some memorable matches, too. I mean, I I felt like the halftime Heat Super Bowl match, although it was gimmicky, was certainly memorable. And it was a Mm -hmm. good way to kind of permeate into mainstream culture because, you know, you could flip from what I consider to be the shitty Super Bowl halftime show and go and watch wrestling, which, you know, if you're a wrestling fan, is like the ultimate thing, right? Watch football, watch wrestling, watch football. So you watched the... uh... You you watched the the rewatch. I watched the just the dinner part, and the things that were fascinating to me were, of course, Jesse Ventura talking about, you know, in the old days we were trying to do as little as possible and get paid, as opposed to just getting the crap beat out of us night after night. Those types of stories, you know, juxtaposed with with Foley, who's obviously rethinking. The amount of violence he took in his career. Um, yes, no, it, this it's is, this is very possibly... much a center of conversation between Ventura and Foley, and and another place where it comes up. And I don't think it's in that first convo. In the second one, they start talking about the backyard wrestling too, and Foley's really thinking about how this whole Foley is God, Mick Foley guy who can take the chair shots of the trash cans and fall through the cages. How you have all these people at home trying to be mankind. And he's really rethinking it, especially as he's looking at all of these injuries piling up. For the extras, it's the most engaging I've found Jesse Ventura. Yeah, I, he's I, I don't, less I don't of like, a, I mean, I He's I less don't of a care. tool Yes, yes. No, I, I thought he was pretty stripped down here. He was really just trying to have a combo. He's still a little bit full of himself because he's Jesse yes. Ventura, and, and you're never going to get... Uh, Jesse Ventura, who's not very high on his own bullshit, but I did think that Jesse had a lot of meaningful and constructive things to say. I thought the conversation that Jesse had with Mick about wrestling Terry Funk was really interesting, and he was talking about how Tell he me had, about it. Yeah, so they had this 60-minute match that goes to a time limit draw, and Jesse is putting over how good Terry was as a worker. He's like, this is one of the best guys i ever worked with, because we were coming into it at the time I was finishing people off with a full Nelson, and I slapped Terry into the full Nelson in the last 15 seconds, and we get that final beat down right to the spot, and he says, and this was unbelievably humble for Jesse Ventura, there's no one else who could have carried me through 60 minutes like that and he says no that's it like true because that. jesse yeah. is jesse ne- see jesse never put himself over as a great worker right and he always put himself over as a great personality and and you know and everybody else did too because nobody thought much of his matches for the most part adrian adonis was the workhorse of of the um 
Oh, there's a great Adrian Adonis and Jesse tagging up and having a match with Mad Dog Vashon's story where, like, essentially they give Vashon a receipt. That that story is very funny. That's also buried in there. It's not, like, deeply insightful. But if you want to hear a fun little story about potatoing each other, they have one of those. Yeah, that, that you know, but that sounds like Jesse. I mean, Jesse will say, hey, he carried me for 60 minutes. I think other people could have probably carried him to 60 minutes. I think, like, Flair probably could have. But but just for that territory, yeah, Funk, I mean, nobody's ever going to deny Funk was a great worker. He's just crazy as hell and still taking bookings. <laughs> uh, what else on, uh, on, on either of these extras caught your ear? I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, you know what? Politics. I thought, you said yes. something about politics. Yes. Okay, so Mick is talking about how Vince, and this is in the 1990s, had a very sort of permissive structure about wrestlers going and doing political stuff, which was weird, And but this is the way Mick put it. So you, if you want to contradict me or if you want to contradict me or whatever, that's fine. I'm just saying what Mick said. So okay. he says that he wanted to go over to Angola and do a show to help promote the removal of landmines. Mick Foley was like, while I was overseas in Japan, I became aware of the the horrors of landmines, and I really want to get rid of landmines. If if you know anything about landmines in, in the countries where there are landmines, um, it's really devastating. There's a lot still in France. Yeah, and- this is a big Princess Diana uh, thing as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, they're they're really destructive, and you have these landmines that are there, and they can sit for like 80 years in the ground. People forget that they're even there, and then all mm-hmm. of a sudden you have this horrible tragedy that's completely ridiculous and senseless in all ways, right? Like, why would you want to kill someone 80 years in the future? That makes no sense. So Mick Foley wants to be involved in this cause, and Vince gives him this big runaround about this and, and sort of goes, oh, no, I really need you here, buddy. And so Mick kind of ends inventing another excuse to leave where he sort of just cites his family, and then all of a sudden Vince is totally fine with that. And... Mick and Jesse get into this, and this is sort of like just obliquely, but they sort of talk about how Vince has always been able to do this very convenient dance with the U.S. government where he, even though he's been in the crosshairs at various points, I mean, if you think about it, like in the late 80s, you know, he was in the crosshairs, and he's been in there in various times in the future, too. Mid-90s? Yes. Yeah, right. He's always been able to avoid actually having any accountability with this whole uh, independent contractor shenanigans that he does and, and the way that he spins it. And Jesse's sort of breaking it down. He goes, well, I'm an independent contractor, but I can't take bookings anywhere else, right? And mm-hmm. then, oh, Blostein is the name of the uh, director? Yes? Blostein. Blostein. Blaustein. So Blaustein starts asking, do you have insurance? And he's like, no. And Mick's like, but Vince will give you money and generally does do a pretty good job taking care of people. And Jesse volunteers, yes, but when he gives you money when you're out, he is doing it because he has an angle and he's still not finished with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, another thing, and this, this is a little just a tangential thought, but I wanted to get it while I was on the top of my head. Afa comes up a bunch. The Wild Samoans come up a bunch. They come up a little bit in the movie, but they come up even more. Yeah, when when he when he came, when he came, when he the story was he wanted to take off for the birth of his son and got fired for it because he didn't get permission or something to that effect. Yes, and Mick talks more about how essentially the Wild Samoans and I'm not sure the, the further story on this. They essentially had like one bad match or one bad outing or something and sort of have been 
permanently stigmatized. And Mick was like, yeah, overseas, you know, they were doing all these moonsaults and stuff. And the other thing is that there were a lot of people who didn't want to have these 300, 400 pound guys doing moonsaults and really getting over and really kind of breaking big. And I was thinking about all of that stuff in the context of when Roman Reigns didn't get the title that first time. Remember when they kind of aborted on the Roman Reigns push and Awful was really losing his mind backstage over all of that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, did, that yeah, that made me that. think a little bit more. I was like, okay, okay, that may, maybe that moment makes a little bit more when, sense when Seth, now. When Seth Rollins cashed in and won at at WrestleMania in San Francisco or San Jose, right, right, that, that, and he was backstage, and and and, and the, the the report was that he was going insane, trying to yell at Vince. You promised him, and all these other things. Yeah, no, I remember that story quite well. Yeah, um, and so listening to Mick relay those anecdotes about the Wild Samoans a little bit more, I was like, hmm, okay, all right, I think I get a little bit more of what Off is talking about. I think we're at a good stopping point on this episode, though. Is there anything else you wanted to hit? No, I think actually we're past a good stopping point. So, <laughs> so uh, No, we want to thank all of you who subscribe to the Patreon. Yes, thank uh, you so much. This was enjoyable as opposed to doing a live watch. I'd much rather do these types where Chris and I have to do a little bit of homework. We have to do a little bit of notes. Um, but no, I loved this. I, I, I hadn't seen this movie in about four or five years, so it's nice to sit down, watch this it, is a think really about your good prejudices. Film. Yeah, it is. It really yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, it has problems or whatever, and I can certainly, you know... It's too cute by half for yes, half of it, right. but and I, the I whole, can forgive I'm it. watching TV as a little kid, and here I'm watching Rob Van Dam as a little child of the 1950s. I, I mean, it's that part's a little cutesy-wootsy, but I gotta tell you, I, I'm looking back on this and going, dude, uh, the director has nothing to be ashamed of. This is a very, very cool, well-done film that captures a really interesting moment in time and does a really nice job telling us stories with all of these people. I, I enjoyed this watch a lot. Mm-hmm. And the extra uh, content you, is totally worth watching if you ever get a chance. Yeah, if to. you have the if you have the DVD or you can order it uh, from somewhere, uh, the extra is are very very cool. I'm surprised Universal isn't putting out a 20th anniversary edition of some sort, but uh, that might just anger the WWF again. I don't think they want to tangle. Although, then again, they're on USA. They're on Universal's network. What are they going to do? Um, you can follow me at Crap Game 13. You can follow Chris at Chris Novembrino. You can follow the show at Shake Them Ropes. You all know this because you all already follow the show in some way because you've subscribed to this Patreon. But again, I just wanted to thank you. And uh, Chris, if you had any further plugs or anything, feel free. Don't worry.tv. If you want to go through the Mole Report, I have episode eight of our Mole Report series out now, so check that out. Don't worry.tv. Don't worry about the government on iTunes and Stitcher. The All in the Family Podcast will be back with another episode soon enough. All in the Family Podcast.com is where you find that. Thanks, guys. Rate, review, go to iTunes, tell them you love us. Yeah.